out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I am David Eastall and I'm with you, well, probably for another 60 minutes. As always, we'd love to play the best in indie pop from the golden decade, but we also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the violinist, Jana Jacobi, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member of The Black Watch with John Andrew Frederick, but currently is on tour with Rod Stewart and has been on various albums of his of late. This is the interview, and after a bit of casual chat, we got down to the exciting business of the early years and how she got into music and all the other exciting stuff that you want to hear. Anyway, this is Jana, and um, as I said, talking about the early years. Anyway, over to you. I can't even remember half the time. I have to go look it up on some all music or, you know. Yes. My own own records. I know. It's funny. uh, We're going through all of our old CDs and deciding what to toss and what to keep. And I'm like, but I have to keep everything I've ever played on. And, you know, that's actually been the biggest reminder of, of some of the things I've played on. And. I think, you know, in my in my Black Watch days, which I would consider the 90s and uh, my awakening to alternative music, um, because I came from a folk music and a classical music background and a jazz, like folk, jazz, a classical. My parents were great musicians, great music teachers who loved jazz. But my dad had a high regard for classical music, too. And he knew that he was smart enough to know that to have a good technical foundation would serve you no matter what kind of music you were playing. And I feel super lucky. Of course, I was a defiant bratty teenager that never wanted to practice. But now I'm very, very grateful that my parents, you know, held those uh, values in high regard to make sure we were practicing and studying and having really good musical opportunities. Yes. Uh, so when I moved to L.A. in 1988, um, and then I, I met John, oh, probably around the same time, 89 or 90. And, and they heard me giving a fiddle lesson in, in a house that I uh, lived in in Los Angeles. And my landlord, who he and his wife lived downstairs, and then there were four of us who rented rooms upstairs. He was a drummer. And they were just rehearsing in the garage, and they heard me giving a fiddle lesson. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting with our music. And I remember the go-betweens had, there were certain rock yes. bands, um, even through the seventies and that like Bob Dylan used some really interesting fiddle stuff and Leonard Cohen and even Rod Stewart, who I ended up working for featured the fiddle in, you know, rock and roll music. Cause Rod's influence is, is heavily, I mean, you might not realize this, but you know, he loves Dylan, Bob Dylan. And so, well, it's it's interesting with Rod Stewart because I know there was this funny, I say funny, it wasn't funny really, but it was like this little documentary of him kind of as a mod before he'd even become a as an established singer. Somebody must have just said, oh, look, we'll film the scene in London and it's black and white and he's just yeah, walking around. It. Yeah, it's so fascinating. It is for many reasons because there wasn't a lot of film. It was expensive and someone thought, look, we'll get this complete unknown person and just film them and then keep the tape and not just even bin it. So obviously, you know, probably 99% of the time that wouldn't have been that interesting, but it turned out to be Rod Stewart and he was Yeah, kind you're of, right. And so many like, things had to go right for that to even find its way to the light of day. You're right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there was pictures of him on C&D marches and, and he played on some very sort of early folky kind of stuff before he, he became much more into R&B and that 60s stuff. So it was one of my favourite songs is kind of a very... Um, which I can't remember what it's called now, but it's, <laughs> that's, that, mm-hmm. that's how much I love that song. But well, um, when I yeah, first got the job, people were like, what, ro- violin, fiddle in Rodster? And I also do mandolin and some guitar as well. But, uh, you know, they seem to forget that a lot of his roots are folk music driven. And he loves, you know, he used the mandolin. My goodness, Maggie May is featured. Yes. <laughs> um, and I would consider the mandolin very much a folk music instrument. So, um, you know, I, obviously I'm really good at digressing, but yeah, coming to LA in the nineties and awakening to alternative music was, it was really, um, fun for me because 
I've always had a fraught relationship with being a musician because my parents were musicians. I never felt like it was my choice or my thing. It was something that was expected of me. Uh, so getting into this different kind of music and discovering, you know, all the fun bands that were out there uh, became kind of my thing and my identity, which all teenagers and 20-somethings are trying to do is find their identity separate from their parents. Yes, this is and, true. Um, so and where, where, really, where did you, um, so going back to your those formative teen years, where did you grow up and, and when did you get sort of given the fiddle and say, look, you're going to learn to play this because it's going to be good <laughs> for you. You won't want it now, but one day you'll go, oh, so marvellous. Yeah, well, it wasn't quite as storybook as all of that, but um, my my dad, who is a really interesting musician himself in his own right, plays a lot of instruments. Uh, in the 60s, he and my mom uh, met in L.A. and moved to Northern California kind of to start a new life. My mom was his third wife, so he was like, okay, I need to keep trying something different to try to make this work. Yes. And uh, he bought a music store in Northern California, and he went back to graduate school and got his master's uh, in music education. And through this, through the research and through the time, um, the Suzuki method was coming to the U.S., uh, which is a really interesting way of teaching very, very young children how to play instruments, particularly the piano and the violin. Um, and my dad was just reading about it in academic journals. Um, and he thought, oh, I've got this small child running around. Let's try it out on her. <laughs> and that was me. And I was about 15 months old when he first gave me a little violin lesson. And by three, three months later, I could play a little um, of Twinkle Little Star. And he was super excited and thought, wow, this is working. And the Suzuki method is based on language, really. It's like, how do, how do small people acquire language without any like sort of formal education? How do all of us learn how to speak and use our language? And it's just by being immersed and music, if you think of music as another language, that's the um, that's kind of the crux of it. So anyway, that's kind of where we were. We were in Northern California at the time. And because my parents are musicians and I think we've got a bit of a wanderlust gypsy at heart, uh, my dad kept uh, moving. We kept moving. He was trying uh, he was getting after his master's, wanted to get his doctorate in music education. And somehow we ended up in the Midwest of the U.S., in Illinois, and then later into St. Louis. And those were really fantastic years for my classical education. I had some fantastic violin teachers. So, I mean, I hobbled along until I was about five years old when I started to learn to read music and started to, you know, play little mini concertos and songs and things like that. But we do have a history of moving frequently. So I kept changing teachers, which I kept changing changing kind of the focus of my formal education. Um, and then we finally landed back in Northern California in uh, when I was about 10 in Redding, California. And there, for some reason, was all these fantastic fiddling communities, which is like American folk music, Texas style. And then there were a lot of competitions. And when I was about 10, I started learning all these American folk songs. And because I'd already had some really good classical training, I, um, I took to it quickly. And again, it became my own thing, something that my dad didn't quite understand because he was a jazz musician. And uh, I just got really into it. And from the age of 10 to 15, I was crazy focused. I won many competitions. I was the first woman to win the Grand Masters in Nash Nashville at 14 years old. And um, so I excelled really quickly and did really well on a national level. And then, I don't know, something happened where I thought, okay, I've, I've done that. Let's, let's get back to, um, I think maybe my dad also said, let's, you know, you really need to still focus on your classical training. And um, so I went to Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan, which had a very good classical uh, music background and a good education. And then I um, ended up in Vienna, Austria, um, at the music conservatory there as an exchange student when I was about 17. God, that must have been life-changing, that It moment. was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I always kind of had this super eclectic background, a lot of different kinds of music. Um, and for a long time, even through my 20s, I thought, oh, you know, that old saying, Jack, Jack of all trades, master of none. And I felt a little, you know 
like I never really excelled greatly in any one of them, but I did, but I, I kind of did okay. But I really did. I was just kind of wandering, trying to find myself and musically. Uh, I moved to L.A. after graduating from Cal State Chico in Northern California. And again, I just I was a bit cynical about what it was to be a musician for a living. I knew it was tough. I knew that if I didn't go into teaching, I really had would have no stability in my life. So I had a series of office day jobs in L.A. and started playing in the black watch and we would be recording all night long. And then I, you know, head out to my job the next morning, like you do when you're in your twenties and you have so much yes. more energy. energy. <laughs> so when the, in the eighties period, cause this was kind of like, this is, must've been the very formative decade. What were you kind of musically listening to or were you just so ensconced in playing that you didn't really have that chance? Cause, cause someone like me never played an instrument, but you know, was constantly playing music, just looking for the next record that was going to change my life, which is obviously yeah. what you do when you're young. I just wondered what was on your turntable at that stage. Yeah. And I'm glad you said turntable cause it was certainly there. Well, I'd say back to this 70s in our household my parents would put a stack of records on um, mostly Bill Evans Oscar Peterson and Jackie and Roy all jazz stuff and they'd play all night long they each record would drop and the next one would play and in my room I had some I don't know if it's embarrassing but I had, I kind of had very mod pop um what's the other word uh fusion taste like I love Jean-Luc Ponty I listened to a lot of Gino Vanelli in those years I loved Earth Wind and Fire um who else and then it was a little bit later I got into Joni Mitchell and some of the more folky direction and in my brother's room next door he had either the Beatles or Pink Floyd going so right. I used to think if somebody broke into our house at like 3 a.m there would be three really different kinds of music coming from our rooms and they'd be kind of perplexed like who listens to music all night when they sleep yes and and we did <laughs> so, it was just something you know those things your family does and then you go out into the world and you realize not everybody's family does that this was yes. one of those things and um, <laughs> kind of create but very creative though amazingly creative yeah Mahavishnu. i remember i still have one of their albums um so mine were kind of more, you know, sort of challenging fusion. And it's the re reason I like Jean-Luc Ponty is because he took the violin and utilized it in, um, in a really different way. Uh, and one of the things I always felt really strongly about in the 90s when I was working with the Black Watch and kind of learning how to use the, uh, the violin or the electric violin in a rock or alternative rock forum is that I didn't want to sound like a fiddler coming in to play with that band or a jazz player like a Stefan Grappelli. That was somebody else I listened to a lot, yeah. you know, coming in. I wanted to sound like just another texture or another instrument that that blended in that style of music. Because um, sometimes when I would hear violinists come and play with rock bands, it just seemed out of place to me. It didn't blend. It didn't, you know, collaborate. So that's it was, really... Because it was quite interesting because a few decades, well, not a few decades, a few years later, it was around the 94, 95, there was a lot of bands, I know in the UK, who suddenly got a little string section. And it was like, it was a fashion for rock bands to suddenly go, oh, because there was a particular band who had an orchestral quality called My Life Story in the UK. And... Um, and I've interviewed Jake quite a lot of times. And what happened was that his kind of backing band of kind of like string section would always be getting hired by people like Roxy Music or Brian Ferry or the Manic Street Preachers. It was like, oh, you know, people suddenly went, actually, I want that sound on my record. Where do I go? And it's like, oh, yes, the My Life Story. I've got this kind of slight orchestra. Just book them. They'll, and they'll go off and, and they'd often leave him and say, look, th thanks, Jake, in My Life Story. I really want to be in the band, but we're not going to make any money. But that band you know Roxy Music I can't turn them down it's going to be too good so off they would go so yeah. it's one of those strange ones so it, it did slightly get fashionable in the 90s but in the late 80s and that's kind of interesting because there'd been that kind of there was the hair metal period which was very LA wasn't it of all those kind of 
men with right. lots of hair and and bizarre lots clothes. Lots of testosterone flowing. Yes. Well, some did. It was. It was. Um, they. 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 They hopefully look back with embarrassment because, frankly, it's quite embarrassing. Um, and then you had the indie scene in the UK, which was like the Smiths, and then you had the Go Betweens, and uh, lots of those. Yeah, kind of, My Bloody yeah. Valentine. Really, I, oh, I absolutely yes. love yeah. my My Bloody Valentine, and you know, as a as a folk music girl and also classical and jazz, I didn't know. You know, I remember when one time saying to somebody, oh, I've learned to love distortion. Like, as a classical musician, you're you're trained to have such a pure sparkling tone. And then suddenly somebody's playing a guitar super distorted or, or sonic youth, for instance. And, and at first, when you first come to the concept, you're like, oh my gosh, it sounds terrible. Everything's breaking up. And then you start to hear all these gorgeous cloud-like textures that blend. And you start to hear the overtones. And you start to see like this really painterly beauty that takes place um and that was an, a, a real awakening for me and i think my bloody valentine was one of those bands that did it for me um i'm trying to think you're right like the, you know the smiths and i could name you know uh, stone roses all of those that i just was teething on in in uh in the 90s yes so had you ever recorded any solo albums or work before you know like in you know in your teen period, or was this the first time you started to record material in with the Black Watch? Oh no, I'd, I'd done three old time fiddling records when I one when I was eleven, one when I was thirteen, and one when I was fifteen. Oh, um, that makes sense because I saw the date of these and I was thinking, well, this is a very weird coincidence. There could be another person with your name. <laughs> I was trying to think. That's 76, 78. That meant you must have been tiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was during my fiddling years where I was a fiddling champion. And people would put records out themselves um, because that was, in a way, the only way we learned from each other and you could share um, share the idiom. There wasn't a lot of stuff written out in music. And one of my favorite things to do or my only way to learn music was to play somebody's record on half speed so you put it down from 32 to 16 speed and it would drop everything about an octave and it would be half as fast. And so you, I learned a lot of songs playing with records at half speed, um, a lot of, you know, folk music fiddling songs, yes. uh, which half speed was like 32 down to 16 and a quarter or something. So it wasn't exactly a pure octave, but so you had to make some adjustments. It really forced you to listen and learn nuances in a different kind of way. So I mean, nowadays through... there's an app that can just do it and doesn't drop drop the octave. It just slows things down and and holds the octave. I mean, oh, you know, so that must be so useful because you did three yeah. albums. The double barrel bluegrass one was that more of a collaboration? That particular... yeah, that was a collaboration with a friend of mine, Mark Petty's, who's a spectacular banjo player. Sadly, he's no longer with us, and uh, he was just a genius. And my dad, you know, my dad was very interesting forward-thinking man he said oh this is a great kind of marketing angle these two you know hotshot young teenagers playing their instruments really well and so my dad was always always thinking about a way to market something <laughs> <laughs> good old dad yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah so you vaguely touched on how the the what the moment came when you were you were found by the the black watch band so were they in that period had they formed or were they just about to form, to um, begin? No, John, John Andrew Frederick had uh, been in Santa Barbara and had a version of the band, and I want to say in the late 80s. And then I'm, I'm a little cloudy on the timeline, but around 89 or 90, he moved to L.A. to, like every other person, uh, to make it. <laughs> we're, all, we're all coming here to make it. I, I was just coming here to find a job that wasn't going to scare me like, yes. uh, instead of an orchestra audition. Um, and I think he, he kind of felt like it was time to really give music and songwriting a go. So he moved to LA and then there was a, um, magazine, I think it was called the music connection back there where people would put ads in the saying, Hey, I'm a, I'm a drummer that likes, you know, you list your five favorite bands. Um, I'm looking for a band or I'm a, a songwriter. I'm looking for a drummer. And, you know, it's just kind of a like classified ads to find people to, to do, be in bands with. So my landlord and John had connected because he was a drummer and then that's how it was. They were rehearsing um, in the garage and overheard me playing the violin. And it was just kind of, you know, 
I thought, okay, sure, why not? I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a spin, and it was really fun, you know, trying to figure out how to make the violin um, compete with electric guitars and loud drums, and trying to find the technology that worked. And in those days, um, Barkus Berry was the type of pickup that you would use on the violin, or there was Barkus Berry were the early violins that had built-in pickups, but that tended to feed back, and it tended to never give me enough volume. Right. So I discovered uh, Fishman, and to this day I use Fishman. And Fishman is a kind of a direct piezo kind of pickup that, that you slip in between your bridge. It's really easy on and off. And um, it was fantastic. It was like it didn't feed back. I could crank it up. I could run it through effects if I wanted. Um, so it was a whole world of discovering the technology of being amplified and being electric uh, coming from a more acoustic-based world. Yes, because there's obviously, you know, you get the main kind of musical scenes that go and then the other ones around it. But there was definitely a period, I remember sort of with a lot of those bands I interviewed in the 80s, there was definitely a period between 83 and 87, which is kind of the years of the Smiths, but they were definitely a bit of a, an acoustic, not acoustic, but kind of a jingly-jangly quality. And then yeah. kind of after about 88, ecstasy appeared and suddenly everybody was getting into dance music and wanted something with a bit of a dance vibe so you got those bands like the stone roses and the happy mondays and primal the new order we yes. really love oh, new order and the new, uh, the new order yes the, the world that was a happy drug and then and then you had the grunge scene that started and then you, you know then it was brit pop that started to sort of come in because after a few years most of those bands even you know nirvana started to sort of probably struggle to sort of follow up you know, never mind. We, I mean, they had one other album and the MTV Unplugged. But generally, bands, you know, they can't keep that intensity for long. But you were definitely, the Black Watch was definitely a band for the 90s, wasn't it? You did sort of, you were with them for that whole decade and released quite a lot of albums at that time. Yeah, and I was, um, you know, I was kind of learning my way as a, an ensemble musician in that, in that forum, um, learning about, being in a recording studio and working with, you know, three other guys and, and doing the dues paying of driving across the U S uh, in a rented van and sleeping on floors in motel six, you know, the cheap hotels and yes, we love them know, ones. <laughs> doing, doing all those crazy things that you do, you know, nowadays, occasionally when I get to fly on a private jet or stay at the four seasons, <laughs> You know, I think, well, I did pay some dues and I, <laughs> I enjoy this. I mean, sometimes you're like, how did I end up getting to do this? You're like, well, I worked really hard for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. So that was because obviously there was a, a compilation that came out last year. In fact, 31 years of obscurity, the best of the Black Watch, 88 to 2019. So when you hear those uh, records again, do you? Are there any particular records or albums that really stick out as like, oh, yeah, we really did sort of nail it at that time? Um, I'm just remembering this song we did called Steve Albini. And there's a, there's, it's been a while since I've listened to them. Because um, funny enough, I don't actually listen to that much music anymore. It's the weirdest thing. I, I think I, when I'm home, I just take a, a real yes. break from it. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Maybe I've been disappointed by stuff uh, in the more recent years. I mean, sort of out of left field. I'm like a big Lizzo fan. I just love her spirit and her attitude. (laughs) And her, um, you know, I like her songs too. I've I've always loved pop music. And I think essentially, you know, in the indie time period and the music that I responded most to always had a pop sensibility. New Order for sure. Yes. Um, And... And bands like that. So uh, I'm trying to think if I could, you know, any other songs that uh, pop up. I, I'm totally drawing a blank. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But then during that time, I mean, you released uh, the, or the band and you were part of it. were nearly doing an album every 18 months, plus probably touring. That was pretty intense, at, you know. For, for for that decade of being, you know, sort of working in that sort of way with those sort of, uh, with that group of people? Well, I think John is a very driven person. I mean, he's still, he's a very driven, very creative person. And um, I personally have always been like, I've always done best. And maybe it's because of the way I grew up with a, a pretty inventive, creative, driven father. 
But when I am around people like that, I feel like I'd love to be in that secondary helping position. Um, I can be really creative and I do have really good input. And nowadays, after all these years doing what I've done, I realize like, you know, I went in recently and recorded some stuff with Rod and we did like, we, we set up the recording studio in, in one of his hotel rooms. I mean, we've recorded a lot of his last record in various hotel rooms on tour and, you know, one, two takes and it's all happening and every, you know, every, everybody's just like, oh, that's so great. And you realize, gosh, I have been doing this a long time. And the choices that I make when I'm coming up with stuff and improvising, that's a result of 30 years of kind of honing that craft. Yes. And so I, um, I've always loved being in that position, being sort of attached to a creative, driven, intense person. But when people say, oh, when are you going to do your solo record? And they've been saying that to me for years. I finally stopped feeling bad or guilty about saying, you know what, that's just not my thing. You know, I like working with people who have vision and drive and I can be a fantastic, you know, helper to that and a facilitator. But, um, that, you know, it's kind of funny how you start to realize what your skill set is and to embrace it. Yes, well, I, I completely agree because I, I sort of realised over the years and I'd sort of done a few of those kind of tests and I realised I'm a really good number two. I'm, you know, occasionally I can be a number one, but it's not my, you know, that's not where I'm sort of most comfortable. But if I'm very good at supporting somebody else, you know, it's like, you know, and it's hard to describe that to somebody. But a lot of people, you know, quite a few people do get it. They go, yes, you're very good at, you know, if there's a good boss or a good leader, you're very good at complimenting and knowing what needs to be done. But you're not that great and comfortable being the leader because you have to have that kind of you're you're quite a different person. You've got the I suppose it's like you've got the baton and you've you know, someone has to have a baton to make something work. And not everyone has that because sometimes you have to be quite ruthless or you have to make decisions. And I'm, I'm probably a bit, <laughs> probably a bit hopeless at being ruthless. So um, yeah, it doesn't really <laughs> it's happen. It's a fascinating <laughs> conversation. It really, you know, in some ways comes down to the ego and the id. Like how much recognition do you need to, um, you know, be happy? And if you can fulfill a job with a skill set and not get as much attention or any attention. Um, if it doesn't bother you, then you just keep doing it that way because it's working. Yes. Um, so how did know, you, I, and how did your your sort of time with the band sort of come to a close? And then what happens next? Say so that. Uh, oh yeah. So so it was around two thousand and three then that you left the band. I just wondered, was there a sort of a point where you just felt that you you'd gone far enough, or had you got sort of other sort of offers coming in that you thought actually I might need to just make a change because you know age and stuff like that we all often need to sort of think okay I need <laughs> well, to. Well if you kind of examine the timeline of when I was hired to start touring and working with Rod Stewart that was January 99 so there was some overlap there and um, it was a little tricky to like you know try to juggle and balance a lot of things uh and some years Rod was very busy and some years he wasn't. Um, and so that left me more time. But yes. it did get to that point where my focus really and my availability became less and less. Um, and, you know, it was, I have to say, it was fun to be making a living as a musician um, for the first time and without having to sort of support it with various day jobs, as they say. Yes. Um, so I was, I was really, you know, kind of riding high on this whole new world that had just opened up to me, like the, the big stage of it all. And, uh, uh, it was, it was quite different, but I, I would still acknowledge that like all the experience I had with the black watch and learning to work in a recording studio and learning to work collaborative with other musicians who didn't read music or didn't come from, you know, a more formalized background. Um, I learned all of that really working with the black watch. And then I was able to take that skill and sort of apply it to, um, working with Rod Stewart and his band. I was laughing because I was just thinking about when I came in for my audition for Rod Stewart, I brought my, I had a huge jazz chorus amplifier, J, JC 120. It was just a monster of a thing. And, um, Carmine, the bass player at the time, he was the music director with Rod. 
he uh, he said, one of the things that stuck in my mind is that, you know, you were out there lifting all your gear and bringing it in. You weren't asking, like, you know, playing helpless and asking, you know, one of the crew guys to come get your gear for you. Like, you were just going for it. And so that always kind of impressed me that you weren't, I suppose, a princess about being a musician. And, yes. And, and did I, you, And was it that point, did you get sort of, as they say, sort of headhunted for that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm just trying to remember that was a long time ago. I think I'm going into what my 21st year. playing with. <laughs> um, I, people sometimes say, Oh, how'd you get that job? And, it, and one of the things I always say to people when they're trying to figure out how to be a musician, and of course this was 20, 25 years ago is I always say, say yes to everything. And it's really about networking and people knowing who you are. Well, networking is on steroids now, obviously, with social media. And it's hard to know the forest from the trees or what's quality or what's not based on just yes. pure numbers and followers. So in some ways, I think it's harder now because people have more of a surface bombardment uh, of information, but they don't really know you know, who's good to work with, who's quality, who's not, who's showmanship, who's this or that. So I think people in L.A. knew that I was a multi-instrumentalist and they were looking for somebody that could do more than just the violin. Um, and that's kind of a common thing in Nashville where you have a, what do they call it, utility player. Somebody can do mandolin, fiddle, guitar and sing. Uh, but in L.A. at the time, I don't think it was that easy to find somebody that could do that combination of things. Yeah. So somebody somebody recommended me for the audition. I was a, I have another weird thing is I was the first woman to play in Rod's band. The first tours I did, I was the only woman. And um, and that was kind of, you know, a shift for them, a shift for him, like to go from this, you know, the boys of rock and roll into bringing on, um, I guess you would say, a more feminine element. Yes, um, because it was. It was it was kind of interesting because with because with Rod, I mean, obviously his work in the sixties and especially the seventies was so good, and then the eighties, as with a lot of artists who who had sort of been doing things before that, got quite lost in the eighties with some of the stuff they put put out. I know David Bowie being one and Robert Plant, and and I always remember there was a documentary with Rod who was talking about his career, and he got to the eighties and. And I thought he was going to say, look, you know, I don't want to talk about my personal stuff. He wasn't that bothered, but he kind of wanted to skip the 80s. And I thought, oh, that's because of his kind of marriages. And he's like, no, it was because of the records that came out. I think he just <laughs> felt like I don't want to think about the 80s because, yeah, that wasn't a good one. And then it took him a while to start to find his relevance. And it was a bit like David Bowie. I think, you know, he, a few of those albums that Bowie brought out in the 80s have been remastered recently. And it's taken that kind of production quality that was just kind of so awful, really. <laughs> I don't know. The 80s yeah. had, a, had a mainstream production, which just found, sounds really dated now. And you have to take out the drum, really, and, and that kind of overproduced sound and then you think oh these songs are quite good so rod rod had sort of been you know a bit like bowie they really had to do something to make themselves relevant again really didn't they absolutely and the question you know for these incredibly uh vibrant creative men who were who are you know sadly bowie's not with us but to this day rod is still as creative and interested in changing things up and looking at new sides of things uh, as he was probably when he was 20 years old, he's done three records in the last five years or so where he wrote on a lot of a lot of the lyrics, a lot of the music on these last three records that I was able to work with him on. And, um, you know, he's just an amazingly creative spirit. And that's that that never stops as as you go through each era. And I think he's had an incredible career that it's been able to it's gone through the, the ebbs and flows of it all but yes um, well I think it was around that time he did the that, that series the great American songbook stuff and right when, and then he obviously got his Vegas gig which must have been like fantastic and I can't remember but I did an interview with Martin Fry who was the ABC guy yeah I know Martin and, and, he, and he was like and you know things were sort of you know a bit not great for you know like the, the lead singer of a band bizarrely but he said I'm sure he said oh my drummer went off and was it with I think he said yeah, Rod Stewart's David. band yeah David played has played with us David after let's see after David I might be the longest 
running member of the band. So David's right. still with David Palmer, and he also was the drummer for The The. So, oh God! So you know, yes, yeah, so well, connected. <laughs> yeah, so I think Martin Fry was like not envious, but it was like yes, the the person who's doing best of all of us now is kind of the drummer who's now with Rod Stewart, whereas he's like still being ABC from 1983 doing, you know, The Look of Love or whatever that particular lexicon of love, isn't it? That yeah. particular album. So it was, it was, oh, right. I'd forgotten about that. Yes, yeah, so that was an interview I did with him a few years ago and he mentioned that. And um, yeah, so he did. Yeah, so Vegas must be like the bread and butter for a touring band, really. Well, um, the nice thing about it, ironically, is you don't have to tour. You just set up shop and you stay in one place, um, which is, if you've toured a lot in your life, it's both thrilling and exhausting. So, um, uh, and so Vegas is nice because it's a relief on, you know, having to pack up your suitcase and move it every day or every two days. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we just we stay there, and you know, I think it's every time we do a show, they put a list on this a number on the set list. Like this is our hundred and fifty fifth show. And I want to say we were somewhere in that 150 to 160 range when we, uh, when basically we were in Vegas when they started doing all these shutdowns in March and we had one more week of shows to do, which got canceled. So we were literally kind of leaving Vegas just as it was shutting down. Oh, yes. Which was, and, and I just remember the Rod Stewart song that I really love, In a Broken Dream by. Oh, yeah. Which um, was. Um, Python Lee Jackson. That's oh. the one. Yes, God, I can never remember that Python Lee Jackson. Yeah, it was so, Australian, right? I think. Yes, I think he was. It's like it's one of those quiz ones where you just never want to get asked because you think, oh God, I love that song and I can never remember it or Python Lee Jackson either. So with the with the sort of the Rod Stewart stuff because he's done lots of American songbooks, Christmas albums, but is it his kind of the the other stuff like Time, Another Country, and Blood Red Roses that you've worked on? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, the songbook era was a beautiful time um, for him. I think it, it did a lot of career revival for him and picked up a lot of uh, new audiences that he hadn't had previously. Um, I know that the old fans, the ones that really, what, how do you call them, those really, the, the diehard fans had reactions to it. And even still to this day, some of them are like, oh, I hate it when he does all that crooning stuff. Um and it is a little bit, if you're really in love with that voice and doing the faces kind of thing and the really, you know, sharp-edged kind of, you know, fantastic blues singing, to suddenly hear him doing the beautiful standards, which he grew up with, um, can be a, um, a leap of faith. And then if you make the leap, you're thinking, oh, this is this is beautiful and it's lovely and I was really involved with uh, we hired string sections all over the world and I got to rehearse them and I got to work on arrangements and it was just for me it's a magical memory and the highlight of it was a Royal Albert Hall show we did in 2004 which became a, a video DVD um, uh, called One Night Only I think yes. and they kind of we you know it's a nice split of half standards and half the rock and roll thing. And that was always a little bit of a challenge those years that we toured that. It was basically 2002, the first one came out, but we didn't really tour it until 2003 or four. And then I think by 2007, you know, he, it had run its course and he didn't feel that, um, you know, he needed to keep that element in his shows because he loves to run around. He's a fantastic sportsman and he loves to, yes. you know, be very active true. on stage. So the standards were a little bit more, intimate and internal and i think um it kind of maybe stifled some of that energy that he has even though he passionately loves the music and those songs yes and, that was and, a really happy time for me that memories of those years that we toured the standards and then um and then he kind of you know he had some real momentum going on the back of that believe it or not i think he released four or five no five volumes of we call them songbooks the songbook, the Great American Songbook, um, and and then after that he had some real momentum going, and then he started writing. He he speaks about he started writing his biography, and it just stirred up all these fantastic memories, which kind of I think encouraged him to start writing music again, writing songs, and he is a, is a wonderful lyricist. 
Yes, well, absolutely, because I know there was a fantastic song. I think it's on Another Country, which was a kind of a bit of an autobiographical number about him sort of being rejected from record labels or record mm-hmm. managers. And, Can't um, stop me now, yes. And we still the, we perform that from time to time. Yes. Which still has a great energy. But also, because your name does crop up on lots of other... Um, I suppose uh, stu- I suppose it's not um, live, is it? But in studios, because like I said, I, I'd sort of interviewed a, a band <laughs> a few months ago that frankly is going to completely kind of make me sort of go, no, I have no idea who that was. But yes, yeah, and it was like, oh, you suddenly appeared on one of the songs. So you do get h- hired and asked quite a lot. So are you the go-to person in LA for, um, like, we need a violin player? I know just the person. She lives oh. down the road. <laughs> That was probably closer to the case, which is why I got uh, called for the audition with Rod back in the 90s, because I was a lot more active and a lot more kind of um, just out there doing, you know, more band things. And um, and then I got pretty busy with Rod. And then I fell in love with an Englishman and moved to England in 2007. So I lost a lot of my L.A. traction, I would have to say. And there's so many fabulous, you know, younger, fun musicians coming up through the ranks and doing really amazing work. And I just it's 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 sort of on me. I just haven't cultivated those relationships. Uh, My husband and I moved back to L.A. in 2011 and the touring level with Rod has been enough that I have enough work to survive. So um, I haven't just been out there really networking it. I've just been enjoying my touring with Rod and my family life. I I got married in 2008. And um, it kind of is, you know, I think when you're hungry, you get out there more. When you're hungry for work or recognition or breaking into stuff. And for better or for worse, I wasn't hungry to keep keep pounding the pavement that way <laughs> yes well it's um, a yes it's a and I would love to occasionally I mean I have old friends that still call me to do stuff and even David and I were talking recently he's starting to do some film scoring things David the drummer that we spoke about earlier oh, yes that plays with Rod and we're talking about collaborating on some string work we both love Icelandic music and um you know the woman who won the Oscar for the music in the Joker this last year I can't think of her name but um, we both really love the atmospheric, haunting, tortured, you know, that kind of music and strings lend themselves so well to that. So um, I think, you know, this is interesting and it brings us full circle with this time of, of lockdown and space and slowing down. It gives us all time to reflect and contemplate what's next for us. What's what's a new way we can be creative and um, be relevant and and just work with people we love to work with. I mean, for me, that's always been the most important thing is to in, enjoy the work and enjoy who you're working with. Yes. I mean, does I mean, is it the case? Because this is obviously happening right now. I mean, is everyone just kind of dropping email saying it might be, you know, fingers crossed, kind of the autumn. There is a bit more of a possibility, especially perhaps New Zealand and Australia more than anything else. That is total guesswork and conjecture on my part. I have had no information whether it's on or off from powers that be. And I have a feeling that they don't know yet either. There's a lot of wait and see going on. We're all in the in the wings waiting to see where this heads. Yes, it must be very, yes, it must be quite um, frustrating. And what would you say to an 18-year-old an self if you could have said something back then with knowing what you've, you know, know now and all the experiences you've had, I just wondered what you'd kind of give a little bit of kind of like a, just a word in someone's ear. Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I think, well, it's funny. I was going to say, I think believe in yourself, but you know, something I really kind of am both taken aback by and trying to learn to understand is the newer generation does seem to have a really strong sense of like belief in themselves or the belief to um, set the world on fire. I feel that there's a little bit more uh, a mood of empowerment with, with young people. I, I could be wrong and it's hard to make giant generalizations like that, but, um, but I know for me, I probably didn't trust that 
I had a skill set that could take me places. There was a lot of self-doubt, given, even given all the experiences I'd had and winning all these competitions and having great education. There's a, there's a huge voice of self-doubt and self-questioning. I think that is an element that makes us all become better at what we do because we're constantly trying to improve. But unfortunately for me, it didn't give me that confidence to, to go out and say, you know what? I can do this. I think most of my experimentation with trying new things was just out of naivete. I, I thought, oh, okay, sure. You know, I just kind of flowed with it. So it's a really long answer to your short question. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's interesting. Yeah, it's just it's interesting. And you managed also, I mean, it sounds like you avoided any kind of the, the pitfalls, the excess of being in music, you know, because sometimes a lot of bands just go, oh, God, I, we did get a bit too... You know, it just became too much, you know, like with the drinking and stuff like that. Did you manage to sort of navigate those ones quite comfortably? Yeah, but that has to do more with kind of my upbringing and my parents. And I was playing in casinos for Tony Bennett when I was 14 years old and Engelbert Humperdinck and Glenn Campbell. It was like my summer job and I was playing in their orchestras. And my dad was also playing the orchestra. It wasn't like I was just on my own, you know, hitchhiking to work. My dad was was there <laughs> with me. And... um and he always was like, you know, the, the, the usual lecture a parent gives to kids when they are exposed to, you know, bright lights in big city. He said, you see all these buildings and all these lights? It's because all these gamblers have lost, not because they won. You know, and I found out later, you know, as an eight or as a 20 something year old had gambled away a, a week or two of paycheck uh, when he was first, you know, playing as a musician. Um so I've never, there's never been any real lure. I think I'm an old soul. So I've always kind of thought, ah, oh, well, you know, I kind of just, same thing about being a parent. I, I never had children of my own, stepchildren um, who I adore and love. But uh, I thought, gosh, that looks like a lot of hard work. I don't think I could ever do it. It's kind of this way in which I thought, you know, oh, that excess, that looks really painful. I, <laughs> I just don't think I could do that. Yes. Uh, but that's just who I am and how I'm wired. I mean, I have had my fair share of hangovers. I, I used to joke around that, you know, I went to a party school, by the way. Cal State Chico was known as a big, big party school. But I was a good student, and I didn't party when I was there. <laughs> and then when I got into Rod's band, I was kind of making up for lost time because it was such a fun crew of people. And uh, suddenly you're just exposed to all of these, you know, fun things. And so I did definitely in my in my thirties, when I was first in Rod's band, you know, ha I had a fair amount of fun just hanging out with the guys, you know, and, um, you know, just, just enjoying that. But again, I never was excessive or went off the deep end because I just kind of always had an awareness that, um, you know, it just wasn't who I was or yes. you know, it wasn't for me. And I, I like being around people who are kind of crazy that way. I'm not very, I'm not judgmental, like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But um, again, I think it was my dad's voice who just said, you know, my, my dad's, my dad, had his, some, he had some alcoholism in his family. So he was always really cautious about making sure my brother and I, you know, stayed balanced and aware of excess versus not excess i guess yes and just lastly what um what actual what rod stewart song do you love playing or does that change kind of you know night on or week i just wonder if there's one that you think oh, God, oh yeah i love this one oh i like that question i i've had it a few times uh usually the first one i'll say is you wear it well because it has a really fun fiddle solo in the middle um but other songs I love to play are Forever Young. I play guitar on that, and I just love the lyrics of it. Uh, I had a 94-year-old ex-World War II vet uncle who passed away just when we started the Vegas run in March. And, uh, you know, I just remember thinking about him and hearing those lyrics Forever Young. Uh, yes. I felt really quite moved while we were performing it on that particular day. And... Um, what else? There's a couple that I just, I, I like you. I, I really like In a Broken Dream. I think that's a fantastic song. Um, and do my you play, husband, and, who and do you play, um, 
Handbag and glad rags. Oh, yeah, I love playing handbags and glad rags. There's a video on YouTube that somebody did in the last year of us playing it. I want to say it was in Paris about a year ago in July 2019. And I reposted it because it just kind of took me back to when I played it with Rod in 2002 at Buckingham Palace for the Queen's Golden Jubilee. And um, it made me feel like all those whatever it was, 15, 14 years, just, yeah, or more than that, 16 years, that they just melt away. Like, I think that's something we all love about music is it just completely transports us to a time and place. Um, And it puts us also at the same time very present. Like when I am performing and I look out into the audience and I see that people have kind of released all their woes and troubles of the world of, of whatever's going on into that, real moment of joy and it all sounds kind of hokey and like a hallmark card but you know they're really in that moment and they've released all all the trouble uh you're like oh i guess i am doing something worthwhile here yes well i just i just realized i'd forgotten that my first single was the david bowie space oddity but my second one was sailing by rod stewart Oh, I um, almost mentioned sailing, yes. Right. <laughs> because, because there was a, I remember now, because there was a programme on BBC at the time about this, uh, it was an aircraft carrier, and it was a, obviously a sort of five, six-part series, and it all always started with Sailing by Rod Stewart, and so it just kind of became part of this sort of this soundtrack to, to the UK for that particular year, which was probably about, probably 76. So I bought yeah. it, and I thought, and I, I remember enjoying the beat side which was I think called Stone Cold Sober which um a bit of an obscure, obscure song indeed it was hello and that is the interview with Jana Jacoby talking about life in an indie pop, pop band the Black Watch like I said with John Andrew Frederick and also currently with Rod Stewart hopefully anyway this has been David Eastall the C86 show if you want to contact me You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. I will be there. And also all the shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. There you go. Stay safe. Have a great week.